Hello there, and welcome back to Season 2 of Tales from a Cult Insider. I am your insider and former unwilling cultist, Jared Garrett, and I'm here to tell you some stories. Quick recap for those of you who are just joining us, which is rare. I think most of you are reading, or reading, hello, listening to these in sequence. I was born and raised in what can be fairly termed a cult. It was a real live cult, and they lived in a commune, essentially, not with walls, Although the canyon that they finally lived in sort of served as walls. Anyway, it started out in the 60s as, from what I've heard, an offshoot of Scientology. Although Scientology has never claimed them as a sign of an independent Scientology group or an offshoot. And as far as I know, they've never been uh, subjected to the legal pressure that Scientology can often put on people. So... Anyway, uh, it was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment when it uh, was the first first offshoot, and then it was, for a little while, one of the more infamous cults over in the UK and later the USA. When I was born, and the cult broke apart into these two groups. One was dedicated to maintaining this Process Church one, and one main, dedicated to maintain, or starting a new thing called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium. That evolved over the years. I knew it growing up as the Foundation Faith of God. And that finally morphed into Best Friends Animal Society, which you may be familiar with. They're not a cult anymore, in as much as they're not like a group of religious people who um, like practice and believe certain weird religious stuff by any means. They're just helping out animals, and it's admirable. I'm here because I want to tell you stories. Uh, I've got a little bit more anger to work through, and I'm almost done. So actually, when I'm done, so is this season, and so is this podcast. So enjoy it while it lasts. Hopefully you'll stick with us. If you have any questions for me, you are welcome to email me at jared at jaredgarrett.com with comments and questions. I have done speaking engagements and I'm happy to do more. You can reach me at that same address in order to chat and maybe set something like that up. If you have questions, I'll answer them here on the podcast as soon as I get them. This is episode number 28, which is actually the fourth episode of season two, the final season. That's right. I'm going to run out of stories. I don't really want to prolong this uh, any longer than needed, but I want to tell all the stories because I think it's it's great, and I have loyal listeners who now deserve to hear the whole thing. So, last week, it was actually about two weeks ago, I told the Pulse Cult post-cult story number one about being painfully shy and how I broke out of my shell. I want to thank my friends again. I also want to point out that if you like this podcast, uh, you know, you can you can reward me for my time by clicking on the support link in the podcast description. You can also please review this on your iTunes or your iHeartRadio or your whatever, you know, platform for podcasts. Even Anchor, my wonderful, wonderful platform and sponsor for this podcast. So, on we go. Today is episode 28. It's called, What Was Our Religion Anyway? And that's a really interesting question because, honestly, I grew up not really sure what our religion was. As far as I knew, our religion was um, be weird. That, and that is truly, truly the entirety of what I thought our religion was. It was to be weird or to be... Uh, I can put it in other words, maybe with some other impressions I had, uh, either be weird or be separate from the rest of the world. Um, and I mean, you know what? That's it. The two, those two things, be weird or be separate from the rest of the world. That's all I could see as driving um, our, any doctrine or religious um, practice and stuff uh, with a lot of other things thrown in. I mean, you could see some Druidism, 
slash paganism in there because there seemed to be some worship of animals and of other natural, natural, I mean, oh boy, natural uh, phenomena like the sun and the moon and features of, in astronomy. But there was also plenty of science in as much as, you know, we did look at the stars and moon. We, there, we did believe in evolution, but there was still also strong emphasis on the Bible, you know, and, and the teachings and existence of Christ. Um, and so we were definitely a, a, a version of Christian. Um, and it, but that's kind of the way, I, the way I felt about it. It was just like we seem to be a version of Christian with some paganistic Druidism, Druidism thrown in. Um, there's a little bit of Judaism thrown in there in that there's a kind of a prophecies about a messianic uh, coming at some point that hadn't come necessarily yet because I'm not sure they really believed in uh, Jesus as Messiah who had already come, but maybe they believed more in Jesus as a teacher and prophet who had, had just been on earth, which is funny because Jesus himself says, I am, you know, he, 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 he testifies of his own divine sonship that he's the only begotten of God in the flesh. So either he is or he's crazy. I mean, because if you, and I'm taking a page out of C.S. Lewis's book, right? C.S. Lewis made that very state, clear statement of logic. Um, in any case, we're not going to get into that. But yeah, it, it was very vanilla Christian. And that leads me to the, what I, when I asked a, fr a fellow, a guy named Corwin, who Lucia thought the name Corwin was too manly. So she, she told him to get a less manly name. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. That's really what happened. So he chose the name Evan, which I don't know if it's biblical, but it's softer. And it suited him well enough. But Corwin was a far cooler name because it sounds a little bit, maybe even a lot bit, like Conan, which is probably why she had a reaction to it. Anyway, I asked him once. Uh, I was living in Dallas, which you're all familiar with at this point. Uh, living in Dallas, and I was... We were. It was Sunday. We were at the building where we where we did our Sunday services, which we called celebrations. Uh, Sunday service was over. Sunday service had consisted of uh, guitar and piano. No, mostly guitar accompanied uh, hymn singing, um, some scripture reading from the Bible, um, some interpretation of that scripture, uh, a few ritual type things with incense and or 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 um, like olive oil and candles and stuff, and then what was called a revelation, which was actually just Lucia or Jason uh, spending about 30 minutes fuming and frothing at the mouth about uh, how terrible the world was, how fallen it was and broken it was, how the world would never be redeemed, and how the government was so corrupt and America was the absolute worst, and so on and so forth. Um, I found myself giggling sometimes because, I mean, we were a freaking fringe weird group. Uh, and in the United States of America, there, there's this thing called freedom of religion, which mostly still exists uh, for the most part. Uh, and, you know, this fringe commune cult thing could happily and merrily exist in this country. And so it was funny to me. I felt it ironic that they were ripping on a country that allowed them to exist. And one of the only countries that would truly allow them to exist with the freedom they had. So, but, you know, what are you going to do? Um, they were cultists. Uh, I asked Corwin in that on a day after you know that event, um, that celebration. Hey, what what religion are we anyway? I was twelve or thirteen, guys. I mean, I'd been in this thing my whole life. I'd seen teachings come and go. I'd been singing songs like "Contact Reaching to the Stars Through the Spirit of the Night." 
and um, Adonai, Adonai, and our feet shall stand among the gates of Jerusalem, and others, you know. Um, and I, we were all, always singing these songs that Lucia made up that were to the tune of popular songs. Uh, so there's a lot of that stuff going on. We were in a in a cult school, a school organized by the religion. We were being doing, or we, excuse me, we were doing all these funky, weird exercises every Sunday uh, school day morning in, in focus class, which I already did an episode on. Go back and review that if you're interested in that. So when I asked Corwin what religion we were, we were, it was a sincere question because I didn't understand what we were trying to do. You know, it just felt uh, full of double standards, which we talked about, I think. Um, yeah, a couple of episodes ago, random double standards. Uh, we were, it seemed like the, the adults were fairly abused and unhappy um, and overworked. And um, it just felt like this was a, a cult of personality, you know, uh, worship of Lucia and do exactly what she says. And then it, it also felt like it might still be a cult of personality for Gabriel, the British man who spoke in this accent right here with very much a very soft voice. That sometimes it often struck me as quite insincere, quite artificial in the way he spoke. But that's still how he speaks. And so I'm not really sure if that's was an insincere voice or whatever. I'm kind of getting rambly here. But, uh, you know, so cult of personality, I could understand. Um, but actual religious beliefs, I didn't know them. Um, Corwin said, well, we are a non-denominational Christian sect. Non-denominational Christian sect. And that's exactly what they were at that point. And that's all they were, you know, for the rest of my life in the cult. They were a non-denominational, more or less Christian sect. But what really was the religion? Because what were we being actually taught? Uh, it's a pretty big question, and it's a question I never really could answer. And I'm not sure I could answer it, it to this day. You know, what were we being taught? Um, and that may have contributed to my lack of um, feeling like there was stability, uh, like there was any kind of moral center that I could fall back on to, you know, inform my day-to-day -day choices and my life. Um, it was just, you know, whatever a person felt like preaching at the time, uh, that was the religion at the time. Whatever Lucia decided to rant on about for an hour or half an hour, whatever she had decided to yell at us about, that was our religion. Um, whatever came down from uh, Best Friends slash Angel Canyon was our religion for the time. And f thus, the true religion, the true religion I saw was um, everybody must work their hineys off for the benefit of the headquarters, which was in Faith Canyon first and then Angel Canyon renamed, or Canab Canyon later renamed Angel Canyon, now uh, the, the site for Best Friends Animal Society. Right. That was the religion. The religion was make enough money and support and give all to the cause of animal rescue and animal sanctuariness um, in Dallas for part of the time. Part of part of the religious practice was actually going and visiting kids in hospitals. We're going to get into um, something there in a, in, in a future episode, which I have never revealed in public, but I will reveal it in public during that episode. Um, but yeah, the religion absolutely varied based on who was preaching it. Granted, there was a Bible. And the hymns that we, we sang were written by cult members uh, based on passages from Isaiah or Ezekiel 
sometimes in the New Testament, and also based on some pretty New Age stuff. Contact reaching to the stars through the spirit of the night. Something, something in beauty. He is the way to Christ. Um, that's that's pretty New Agey Christian stuff. You know, that, that's, that's wild. Um, and there was also, you know, acceptance of self, acceptance of others, uh, control of self, and so on and so on. Um, it was, uh, yeah, pretty much an eclectic, diverse gathering of all the things, which is glorious, you know, really glorious. And it, it, and it didn't really leave me, us with any kind of moral center, especially if you stop and think about those random double standards I talked about a few months or a couple weeks ago. Um, how, you know, there were, we were preached at about, uh, you know, watching out for sexual stuff. And sex was essentially a bad word, as I explained and told in that, or illustrated in that story about the song. Um, I spent years being uncomfortable saying the word penis, guys, uh, and the word vagina, right? I mean, but then there was profligate sex having uh, throughout much of the cult's early life. And then there was plenty of partner changing and switching around. If, you know, maybe not like every week to week, but every couple of years, you know, a member, a founder would be with another founder, you know, a different one or a new member of the of the group. It's kind of funky, man. Um, that was just a common thing. You know, you knew that uh, your mom or your dad might end up being with somebody else. So um, I, I've seen I saw plenty of affairs and stuff. And so, again, back to this double standard, back to this religion thing. I don't know what their religion was supposed to be beyond whatever somebody thought made sense to them at the time. And by somebody, I really should specify somebody in authority. So that comes to the question of where did it start? Now, we talked about that a little bit, but I want to be a little more specific about it and share with you some of the actual parallels between this group and its origins in Scientology. I've probably mentioned it, but I want to say it anyway. So I got out at 17 and I later joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints some years later. Wound up on a mission, which was a truly wonderful and miraculous experience in my life. Very big, important part of my life. Uh, and later just kind of went on the journey, you know, of faith and of finding myself and of developing, you know, skills and abilities and faith. Uh, and here I am. But I should tell you that less than 10 years ago, I'm, I'm in my 40s, I'm in my mid-40s. Less than 10 years ago, I was reconnecting with folks on Facebook who had been in this group uh, back when I was a baby and sometimes even before I was a baby, before I was born. And they were having conversations about kind of how things were back when they were in. And it didn't sound at all familiar to me. It, it sounded completely different from what I was growing up in. And so I'd share that and they'd be like, oh yeah, but that's before the schism. Like what schism? I didn't even know it had a schism. Why didn't they tell us? I don't know why they didn't tell us, but there was the schism, which I talk about in my intro. Um, and then they talk about, uh, you know, other things, other practices, like with an e-meter um, and auditing yourself and stuff like that. Um, and I was just like, what are you talking about? So finally, it got to the point where one of the people wrote a book uh, about their early experience or experience in the early process, Church of the Final Judgment. And it's called Love, Sex, Fear, Death. And it's by Tim Wiley. Um, I read that book because I was just like, well, now what? Wait a minute. Where where, where do we come from? Because I didn't really know. Um, I'd found some weird things uh, in an attic once in the house called Dixie in Dallas that confused the crap out of me. Um, 
concerning, you know, the religions, quote unquote, I, I was in. And so I read Love, Sex, Fear, Death by Tim Wiley and found out for the first time, you know, mm, nearly tw about 20 years, actually, after I'd gotten out, that the cult I'd been in <laughs> had been in Scientology, that it had splintered off of Scientology in Oxford in the 60s, like I've already said. I had no idea. I like actual had no idea. But as I read through that book and then I took a little bit of a look at Scientology, which I find very unpleasant to read about because it's so bad, um, I realized that truly was. There were so many parallels. Now, some of these parallels are very much general to cults. Cult behavior is recognizable, right? You can tell it's a cult often by the fruits, by its, by its behavior. But I want to talk a little bit about how Scientology still showed up in this cult even after the schism, because the process is really, you know, where it split from the process. It went from process to process on one side and foundation on the other, and the process went off on its own, and foundation went off on its own, and my, and I wound up growing up in the foundation, right? Well, the process folks, they wound up sticking with Scientology a little more, sort of, but not exactly, because they went a little more nutters. But I want to just share a little bit about who and what we were and where we came from. So buckle up guys, let's do a little bit of a history. We're gonna start with Scientology, all right? What it was, so you may not know, but Scientology was started by a feller, and I'm scrolling by the way, you may hear my mouse wheel. Just wanna make sure I get this right. So uh, Scientology is um, was started by, uh, or invented essentially in 1952 by American author L. Ron Hubbard. So. Hubbard had uh, started this thing called Dianetics. If you're about my age, you may have seen commercials where some big global type of an image is uh, formed and it, it asks these big deep questions, who we are, what we're supposed to do here, um, what is the meaning of life and all that stuff, which is a real, those are great and important questions. And it would come up with this word, Dianetics, would go Dianetics over a globe, right? He started that. Um, he made a program or foundation called the Dianetics Foundation. Uh, Dianetics Hubbard lost control of the, the foundation and, in fact, the intellectual property of Dianetics. He later uh, started other things. He, he created something called Scientology. He says the et etymology of the word Scientology comes from sio, which is Latin, meaning know or distinguish, and the Greek word logos, which means the word or outward form by which the inward thought is expressed and made known. That comes from the Wikipedia article. So he says, thus Scientology means knowing about knowing or science of knowledge, which absolutely, absolutely encapsulates this sucker. So L. Ron Hubbard, you know, he had some odd experiences and he was in the military for a while. He uh, did a lot of crazy things in the military. Boy, how do I tell you? Uh, his, um, he had quite a bad military experience. Uh, he, he used Dianetics to counsel um, folks and to try to help people uh, become a better uh, individual, a better per version of themselves. Let me read you a little sentence. It says, Dianetics uses a counseling technique known as auditing in which an auditor assists a subject in conscious recall of traumatic events in the individual's past. It was intended to be a new psychotherapy and was not expected to become the foundation for a new religion. Now, that's right out of the Wikipedia article as well. So this was a a new approach to helping people get through events and stuff or traumatic events. And, uh, anyway, uh, kind of funky. Um, it, it had some broad appeal, you know, this was back in the fifties when people were kind of exploring things and psychedelics were becoming more and more well known. 
um, the the Dianetics thing kind of struggled eventually because of uh, it went bankrupt and uh, medical examiners and official organizations really thought that these guys were trying to practice medicine without a license and so on. Finally, Hubbard uh, started Scientology as a religion, and he did that almost certainly as a practical measure to move away from uh, it being seen as a medical practice and to try to make it look like more of a, science, a spiritual practice, a religious practice, which, I mean, that that's, that's hella smart, guys. So, um, anyway, we, you know... It, it, it morphed and evolved, and I want to I want to read a little bit more about Scientology. So here we have from the same article on Scientology. Scientology does not preach or impose a particular idea of God on Scientologists. You know that sounds fairly familiar. I was never really preached a certain kind of God. Now, when God was preached to me, it tended to be from Lucia or Jason, and they preached a capricious, angry God. But other folks, you know, talked about a God who was loving. Um, but a God who was going to judge the fallen and broken world and burn it right into hell or something. Um, it, it, the, people are expected from the article to, to discover the truth through their own observations as their awareness advances. And so again, awareness advancing is a big part of Scientology. And their big role or their goal is to try to help people get through uh, you know, traumatic memories, stresses, uh, and help people become a more aware, self-aware, and, uh, you know, capable human being, which is all quite, you know, righteous and stuff. So here we have, um, there's a big article, there's a lot of stuff about what Scientology is really trying to do. They use an e-meter to try to um, kind of find, find somebody's personal state or individual emotional state. They have a real problem with actual psychiatry and psychology. They try to purify a person from drugs. They have a certain process, actually, for purifying people from drugs, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Now, I want to tell you an important thing from Scientology that absolutely continued to uh, be propagated through the, the cult was this thing called disconnection. Disconnection was... Uh, so th this was a... It's a policy which essentially prohibits any kind of contact with what the Scientology Church calls suppressive people. So uh, they deny straight up and down that a disconnection policy exists. That absolutely does. Leah Remini's, um, you know, very impressive work with her documentaries and stuff. It proved that, you know, basically without a doubt. And the foundations had a suppression policy or, or a disconnection policy, which was you know, you're not you're not to associate with people who who are against us. And if you go against us, if you say anything that might possibly reflect badly on us, you are disconnected. We are disassociated, and you're essentially declared a disassociated or disconnected person. And that's how it goes. That's straight up a very culty and very Scientology and Foundation thing to do. Um, other things was uh, Scientology. Uh, Scientologists have been obsessed, obsessed with uh, targeting celebrities. Back, I'm gonna read from the article. In 1955, Hubbard, the inventor, created a list of 63 celebrities who they targeted for conversion to Scientology. So uh, he wrote in 73, the purpose of the Celebrity Center, which still exists by the way, is to forward the expansion and popularization of Scientology through the arts. Guys, best friends, the foundation has been obsessed 
Now, I'm not doing an expose of best friends, but they absolutely have been obsessed with getting celebrity involvement. It legitimizes, it expands their reach, and it, it makes them look less weird, right? Although some celebrities are pretty weird, guys. Um, that's been an obsession of theirs. So that was absolutely carried over from Scientology, was this obsession with the validity and legitimacy that having a celebrity involved would give them. So um, plenty of controversies uh, of Scientology. Um, there's always been, uh, from the Scientologists, it seems like there's always been an effort from, by them to infiltrate certain levels of government, um, make sure that they can get uh, you know, the, their way eased and stuff like that. That was absolutely something that the, the foundation was doing. They would uh, make nice, uh, be diplomatic, and try to get involved with higher up ups, and that helped them kind of get where they needed to go and reach their goals. Um, and uh, harassment is a big thing that uh, Scientology did, and frankly, unfortunately, so did the foundation with people who were disaffected or people who didn't like what they were doing. Um, any kind of um, violation of confidentiality uh, of the cult was uh, met with them be a person who violated that confidentiality being called a suppressive or, um, or basically a defector or somebody who was against and then they were cut off and there were people were to have no contact whatsoever uh, and disconnection and, and stuff like that is also also a big part of the way they treated families so uh, in Scientology uh, if you join and you have kids with you or later your kids event, before too long within a few years or when they're a little older maybe I forget exactly the age um, are expected to join the kids portion of the cult and be raised the way the cult wants to raise them uh, and the bonds of parenting are supposed to essentially be dissolved. Man, that should sound totally familiar to you because that's exactly what happened in the foundation, right? Um, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, the, the, th there's a lot of parallels between Scientology and the foundation, uh, as well as probably the process. Um, I know, uh, however, not too long after um, the, uh, I'm typing in a thing so I can make sure I get this right, not too long after the, the group, the process, left Scientology, um, let me get this right, here we go, they started going into a new kind of approach uh, and doctrine and stuff. Uh, it's funny, you should Google the Process Church of the Final Judgment. You get some funky, funky images. The top right image eh, should look really familiar to you. It's, it's on my artwork. So, um, and so in, in any case, the people used to call it um, a form of Satanism, which is fair because um, this, uh, this group um, did believe in a Satan that we should kind of go after and be a part of. But Satan was not you know, the, the Lucifer, the evil Lucifer that, uh, that, that we see as general Christians, right? Uh, they decided that, um, that their, their religion was essentially Jesus Christ, Satan, and Lucifer, three different beings, but all sort of one being. So fairly much, very much a Trinity. Um, let me see if I can find this here. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's some been associations between Charles Manson and the process. Th those are those are entirely uh, speculative, and I and I don't think that any of that's any real. Granted, there were some similarities in look, but guess what? All the cultists back in that those days in the '60s basically wore big black cloaks. So get off your 
ideas. It's weird. It's a mess. I'm pretty sure that never happened. Um, in any case, let's get back onto track here. So we have a morph uh, an evolution from uh, the Scientology practice to still doing some Scientology exercises and still auditing oneself to try to get over past trauma uh, and get more awareness of self and be able to uh, deal with life uh, with all of its difficulties in a better way by being more and more uh, in touch with who you are and what you're trying to do um, in life and what and who you really can be. Um, if you go to the uh, Process Church of the Final Judgment, Judgment Wikipedia article, you're going to get a lot of really interesting information. But after a period of time where it seemed fairly sat satanic, but not exactly, little Trinity, uh, Trinitarian, Anglicarian, or Anglican, a little bit of Satanism, uh, it sort of toned things down, uh, mainly because I think they found that they were not having a very easy go of it as they were trying to, you know, legitimize themselves with coffee shops where people would come in, get some help, find some, you know, kindred spirits. I think these kind of funky, weird religious ideas and notions about a previous kind of life or even a post-this-life phase of existence may have been turning people off. They, so that, I don't know if it was formal, but I bet it was. I'm guessing Marianne, who's the, stayed with the, 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 the foundation version, um, just, uh, just said, no, no more of this. Let's, let's chill this out a little bit. We're just going to be basic Christian folks. But interestingly, there was still plenty of, uh, Anglican, uh, practice, you know, some of the chants, uh, a lot of the hymns sounded very Anglican as it turned out, as I was exposed to some Anglican practices. Um, and then, you know, one year at age 12 or 13, uh, we found a box of flyers that had a picture of Michael Mountain. Uh, we only called him Michael. He's just, you know, red beard, red hair. I barely knew the guy. He was kind of a recluse for most of my life. He only came out of being more, mostly a recluse. When I was around 14 or 15, when Best Friends was well established, he became a real big part of getting it more established and growing its reach and stuff. He, he, he was smart and very visionary in many ways. Um, but there was a picture of this guy, Michael Mountain, who I'd never really talked to at all. I'd seen him around, though. Uh, he was awkward and weird uh, and fun sometimes, too. Uh, he He's on the picture of this pamphlet, and it's about a Jewish ministry in Arizona or New Mexico or both. Like, where did that come from? Michael's a British guy. As far as I knew, he had a he had an Anglican upbringing, but I may be wrong on that. But there was, you know, that there's clearly some sort of influence um, in, in the foundation from that tradition, which is kind of cool and fun. You know, it's fun to have a diverse background in history. Uh, and then later, uh, we basically settled, as I said, into a non-denominational Christian sect. But then, but then, my friends, in its last evolution phase, at about, oh, I don't know, in 90, probably 1988 or 89, when Best Friends was becoming more and more established, when they were getting more and more donors, when things were getting settled but financially and stuff, but everything was being supported by Dallas, and Dallas was, or not everything, but Dallas was a big, a, uh, a, a big uh, supporter, or not supporter, everybody was a supporter, all the branches were, but they were one of the major sources of finance, financial support because they were just being worked to the bone by Lucia, right? Um, in any case, things were settled financially because Dallas people were working their tiny little butts off. Um, the... Where was I? 
yeah, so they they seemed to morph into a new one. So Dallas still had its non-denominational Christian sect, and I believe that the Las Vegas branch had also a, a similar non-denominational thing, although who knows, maybe they had just dropped all religion. We were just still a commune in some of these branches. But in Best Friends, they would do a Sunday evening service. And so sometimes during those summers, they would do one of those when we were there doing those that work. And they consisted of some funky, funky things, man. Now, at the, for the first few years, it was still just the Sunday celebration. They'd gather in that main village hall room, dining room area with the sunken living room area. If you're familiar with Best Friends, that should sound familiar to you, okay? That should sound like, oh, I've been there. So we would gather in that big sunken hall or all the founders would be down there, first dibs on those nice seats. And then other folks would show up down there. Uh, it was a really nicely carpeted, soft chaired area. But then on the raised level where the tile is, there, there were tail, tables and chairs and the not so important people, kids and some new, newbies would, would sit there for regular celebrations, singing and prayers and a, a revelation of some kind, which, with, which was Gabriel leaning forward in some really uncomfortable looking posture for me because I've never been flexible and that dude flexible. And talking like this throughout this whole thing about vision, about pleasing God, about doing the things that would make us righteous in the Lord's eyes, how rescuing animals were very, was very important to the Lord, and all that other crap. Which was true, but a little bit not so true. And uh, then, in the final years, as I was saying, around 89, I would guess, or 90, they started doing some evening services where they'd gather outside up there at the village, but it was outside and it was this kind of flatter area inside of a grove of maybe junipers and cedars and stuff. And uh, the singing would be done. It was fairly a cappella, and there would be like, it seemed like there were words around how the moon was a goddess and trees were important and creation was a sentient being and stuff. Felt a little druidic, kind of wanted like spirits to come out of the trees. I liked that stuff. That was the fun stuff, actually. Um, and then in 94, they dropped everything. All religion was dropped. Um, but between 91 and 94, um, probably 93 even, they had their Sunday services mostly inside. And songs like Babylon, Babylon the Great is falling. And then... Yes, Gregory. Gregory. Yeah, he's a good dude, man, most of the time, I think. He uh, he would sing, The mark of the beast is upon mankind. And then the rest of the people would sing, Babylon the great is falling. And he would then sing, And all the ends of the earth are broken. And then we'd sing, Babylon the great is falling. That's a little pagany, which is fun. It's fun times. Uh, I read a poem or two up there just kind of about nature and keeping it safe and clean and good and respecting it. Uh, there were gongs, piano, organ, guitar, all the probably lutes and harps. That was fun. Mostly it was music and fun scriptural stuff uh, right out of Revelations as well. Apocalyptic type stuff, but nothing like crazy, just funky and weird. And that was where it evolved to until it just let it all go. Why? Because they clearly weren't devoted to some central doctrine. They were devoted to a central practice of communally working towards the goal of rescuing animals. And it was a commune. Everybody lived either together or in the same place. At best friends, hardly anybody actually lived together. They had, uh, everybody had their own room, pretty much. 
especially as it got bigger or their own trailer and they had kind of had their own jobs that they owned and were a part of, which is much better than, you know, two or three adults to a room down in Dallas and five to 10 kids to a room also down there. Um, that was kind of the living the dream out there, but, uh, that sort of answers the question of what our religion was. And that was ever evolving, utterly, utterly dependent on who was describing the religion. Um, and ultimately the religion went kablooey because of, you know, deliberately, uh, fun note, this Marianne lady who started it, Marianne McLean, she died in 2005. Um, it's funny. And there you go. Uh, if you look at the, uh, Wikipedia, the Wikipedia articles on the process church of the final judgment, have a read through it. Um, you know, ask me which parts of it are, uh, you know, just downright false. And I will happily answer that. In fact, I might even make that an episode. What's totally false about the Wikipedia article, the process church of the final judgment, uh, and so on. Thanks for tuning in It's a little longer, but Hey, we got her done. Uh, next time we're going to talk a little bit about some of the funny, weird disconnects that you wouldn't imagine would actually happen, but they did happen because there was no family relationships there in the cult. Um, so it's going to be called nighttime anxiety and other ailments. Alrighty. Thanks for tuning in. That's the end of my ramblings for this day. I hope you're enjoying things. I hope you'll support me by clicking and telling people about this cool article or this cool, cool podcast. I know it's no, you know, true crime podcast, but it's fun, man. It's telling cool stories and somebody should tell Ellen DeGeneres. All right. I'd be happy to be on her show so we could donate some money to some great cause and maybe I could get a book deal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, love you guys. Review my, my podcast, share it and share it a like. Have an awesome day and stay thirsty.